Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The proposed Keystone XL pipeline is supposed to help make the U.S. energy secure. But a new report follows the flow of oil and money from the tar sands of Alberta to Gulf Coast refineries and finds that's not the case. It turns out that much of this oil that's coming down from Canada is going to be destined for export. They get to import the oil from Canada tax-free, and they get to turn around and export the oil abroad tax-free. Also, forget the economic slowdown. Solar power is booming, especially rooftop solar. We're extremely busy. We've hired 350 people so far this year, and we're hiring for 55 different positions right now. Installers, electricians, marketing positions, sales, accounting, everything. Solar Energy's bright future and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The proposed Keystone XL pipeline would carry crude oil from the tar sands of Alberta, Canada, 1,700 miles to refineries on the Gulf Coast. Critics say the crude is dirty and will speed up climate change, that extracting it from the northern boreal forest is destructive, and the potential for pipeline leaks disastrous. But supporters of the $7 billion project say we need the oil, that it will enhance U.S. energy security and make us less dependent on petroleum from unfriendly nations. Now, however, comes a new report that refutes this claim. The environmental organization Oil Change International's report is called Exporting Energy Security. Steve Kretzman is the group's executive director. It turns out when you look at the uh, at the pipeline that's being built, the Keystone XL pipeline, it turns out that much of this oil that's coming down from Canada is going to be destined for export. And we, you know, what we did was a little bit of sleuthing, and we went back to uh, TransCanada's original declarations to their uh, to the Canadian regulators, and we found out that they're shipping to a certain number of refiners on the Gulf Coast. And when you look at the top one there, that's Valero. Valero is configuring their refineries to be able to produce 90% diesel. There's really not that much of a market for diesel in the United States. I mean, there is a glut of diesel in the United States. There's a much better price to be had for that in Europe and Latin America. If they're configuring those refineries for 90% diesel um, and the heavy sour crude that's coming down from Canada is much more easily refined into diesel, it makes sense that they're going to be using the majority of that to ship overseas. So let's follow the flow. It starts in Canada at the tar sands. It gets transported via these this proposed pipeline, comes into the United States. Does it get taxed there? No. See, that's the wonderful, interesting thing. It's, uh, it comes in via something called a, a foreign trade zone, which is what the refineries are located in. And that uh, foreign trade zone means they get to import the oil from Canada tax-free, and they get to turn around and export the oil abroad tax-free once again. So where does the energy security come through that the companies say we're supposed to drive from this pipeline? 
we really, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's really any increase in energy security from this pipeline. There is increased profits for the oil industry because of this pipeline. And the tar sands producers desperately need an export outlet for their product. There's a, actually a huge glut of tar sands oil in the Midwest United States. This is going to allow that glut of oil to drain and much more oil to be shipped overseas, more oil to be produced in Canada, more very dirty, carbon-intensive tar sands oil to be produced. Um, and, you know, it's going to make them a lot more profit and worsen climate change in the process. So, okay, we won't get a new source of oil and we won't be making money in terms of taxes from the transportation of the pipeline, but will it create jobs? They say lots of jobs, I think upwards of, you know, 20,000 or more. Yeah, that's a uh, absurdly optimistic uh, number on their part. The State Department's impacts uh, study of jobs actually had it coming in at about one quarter of what TransCanada's impact was. They said about 6,000 jobs State Department did. And again, you know, these are not long-term jobs. Yeah, there's a boom-bust cycle associated with the industry. There will be some jobs during construction, for sure, but then most of them will go away. And, you know, a pipeline is a pretty self-sufficient thing. There may be more jobs involved in cleanup when the inevitable spills happen, but it's really not a good job-creating device. It's just you can create a lot of jobs by digging a giant hole in the ground all the way to China, but is that a good idea? I don't think so. Now, because this pipeline would cross the U.S.-Canadian border, the State Department has to sign off on it. And they've said that it will have no significant environmental impact. And the EPA actually has chimed in. And uh, while it has no authority in this regard, it, it's actually gone head-to-head with the State Department. And, and it's not usual, typical, that that happens with two governmental agencies are at odds with each other. Yeah, well, unfortunately, there seems to be something a little fishy going on at the State Department. It seems that... Um, one of Hillary Clinton's top campaign aides has been hired by TransCanada, the pipeline firm, and has been uh, sort of directly working behind the scenes with State Department staff using his connections to actually try to grease the way forward for uh, for the Keystone XL pipeline. President Obama has the, has the final say on this, though, right? Sure. I think all of us feel like this thing is really a key litmus test of the president's commitment to the environmental community and environmental issues in general. And if he wants uh, environmentalists to step up during his reelection campaign, uh, this is a minimum bar that I think he has to clear in terms of rejecting this pipeline. Well, Mr. Kretzman, thank you so very much. Thank you very much for having me. Steve Kretzman is executive director of Oil Change International. Well, of the six companies that have so far committed to buying oil from the Keystone XL pipeline, only one is based in the United States. That's Valero Energy Corporation of San Antonio, Texas. Company spokesman Bill Day says Kretzman's report is wrong. This is not an export dedicated pipeline, which is one of the things that uh, opponents have been saying. This is a supply pipeline to get crude oil to a refinery that has actually been in place for over 100 years and has been processing heavy grades of crude oil for many years before the Keystone XL pipeline was ever even heard of. But what percent of the oil that would be shipped through this proposed pipeline would be used by your company domestically as opposed to being exported? Uh, Unfortunately, there's absolutely no way to know that because that oil coming down from the Keystone XL pipeline to our Port Arthur refinery is one source of crude oil for the plant, but it's not the only source. So it's going to get mixed in with other oil from other places, but there's no way of knowing which particular barrel of oil 
was the source of which particular barrel of gasoline or diesel. Anybody who says they know does not know. The flow of, of oil is driven by uh, global demands, not domestic need. If you got more money from another market, you'd be more likely to sell it there than here. Well, it's actually driven by both global and domestic needs. The United States remains the largest consumer of petroleum and petroleum products. So this is the biggest and most lucrative market. But demand for gasoline has been fairly flat here with the uh, economic downturn. So in order to keep the refineries running at full steam, uh, it helps to have someplace else to send those products. Bill Day is executive director of media relations for Valero Energy Corporation. Mr. Day, thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity. Recent reports of solar companies going bankrupt and stories about alleged federal loan scandals have cast long shadows on the entire solar industry. But the sun is far from setting on photovoltaics. In fact, in 2010, solar panels that could generate 17 gigawatts of energy, that's equal to about 17 nuclear power plants, were sold worldwide. And this year, the U.S. industry expects to double its production, and companies are growing fast to meet the demand for rooftop panels. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. As the sun begins its ascent on a recent morning, a crew of six prepares to install solar panels on a gently sloping roof in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. Their company, Varengo Solar Plus, has crews out on nine other roofs this morning, but CEO Randy Bishop says he has enough business for two more. We're extremely busy. We've hired 350 people so far this year. And we're hiring for 55 different positions right now. Installers, electricians, guys that are up on the roofs, call center, underwriting type. There aren't many companies in the United States who hired 350 people this year. The reasons solar is different are simple. Three years ago, Congress passed and President Bush signed a change that allows homeowners to get back 30 percent of the cost of a solar system from the government. And then the moment solar supporters had waited 30 years for. Solar panel prices have gone in the last three years from $4.20 a watt down to $1.20 a watt, roughly. So it's a huge difference. It used to be more than half of the system cost when we'd install one, and it's now down to less than a quarter. That puts people in the rooftop business in an enviable position. Their cost of merchandise is down 70%. That's pure profit. And then there was a third breakthrough. In San Francisco, another company, Sunrun, figured out it could buy solar systems, put them on homeowners' roofs, and sell them back the electricity. Lynn Jurich is co-founder and president. Sunrun will actually buy the panels for you. So we're really just becoming another utility provider. So now you don't have to spend $20,000 out of pocket and then wait to get that tax credit at the end. Um, you're really able to get the system for $0 to a couple thousand dollars up front. Sunrun owns the panels and the power. The homeowner pays them every month, but less than what they were paying their old power company. A typical customer would be a family with a few children. They're paying somewhere around $180 a month for their electric bill. So now once they switch over with Sunrun, the bill now is about $170 to $175. But the real benefit is that these are 20-year contracts, so you get to lock that price in. 
Sunrun tripled its size last year and has expanded to nine states, including New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Colorado, Arizona, and Hawaii. Millions of people live in places where solar now pencils out. And George says it's power that can be brought online quickly. If the United States is going to make a decision today to say, let's build a nuclear plant or a coal plant, it actually takes 10 to 15 years to get those up and running, at which point solar power is going to be more affordable and it can actually be commissioned much sooner and you know, built in just a year time frame. And Sunrun is by no means the only company that offers to finance and maintain solar systems for homeowners. Another major player is Solar City, whose green vans and radio ads are becoming ubiquitous in some cities. It's remarkable. You save energy, you save money, you help change the world. Visit our savings calculator at solarcity.com or call 877-988-SOLAR. In a vote of confidence for the business model and the company, this summer Google put $280 million into SolarCity's installations. Of course, solar still doesn't make sense for everyone. In parts of the country where electrical rates are low, like much of the Midwest, or in places with mild temperatures, it's still not worth it. Roberta Gamble is an energy expert at Frost and Sullivan. Well, they don't work for me, for example, because I don't have air conditioning. <laughs> I live by the coast, and I don't really have any hot summers, so I don't spend a lot of electricity during the summer months, so I wouldn't save any money. But Gamble says the growth in solar has been impressive, and she expects it to continue in large part because of this solar service model. If you can do that and actually pay less per month, then that's, I think that's a great solution. Uh, a little bit more to your right. A little bit more to the right. That's perfect. For electricians, as for so many construction workers, the Great Recession meant work simply dried up in 2008-2009. My name is Mark Griswold, and I am an electrical foreman for Varengo Solar. I actually owned my own business for over 20 years, and because of the economy, my phone quit ringing, and I had to get a job. The solar ramp-up has made him hopeful. I think it's the way to go. I personally think it should have been done a long time ago, but, you know, as long as the economy is the way it is, it's, it's the place to be. I feel blessed to be in the business. After decades of hopes and predictions that the solar moment was just around the next corner, the moment has finally arrived. Economics may still shift. Congress could repeal tax credits, or the price of solar silicon could shoot back up. But there's no denying residential solar has reached a long-awaited milestone. It's affordable. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. Just ahead, here's a switch. Ranches who are eager for beavers. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The question, what's a navigable river, doesn't seem like such a tough one. It's a river used for business or transportation. But it turns out it's not that simple, and it's going to take the Supreme Court to come up with an answer. The nation's highest court has agreed to hear two environmental cases this session, one about ownership of rivers in Montana, the other to settle a dispute in Idaho over whether a landowner can challenge the EPA's authority. 
The cases involve thorny constitutional issues, which Richard Lazarus is practiced in handling. He's argued environmental cases before the Supreme Court and teaches at Harvard Law School. Professor Lazarus says in the Montana case, a hydroelectric utility claims the state has no right charging the company for use of a riverbed. Today, it seems sort of odd, but one of the most essential attributes of state sovereignty is ownership of the beds of navigable waters. It's so important that every state, when it became part of the Union, that's one thing the Supreme Court guaranteed them under the Equal Footing Doctrine. There was nothing any more important than the beds and navigable waters. Uh, the navigable waters were the highways of commerce. Uh, you couldn't have transportation. You couldn't have the power provided by those water bodies w- without the navigable waters. As I understand it, there were, are 10 hydroelectric dams on these rivers in Montana, and the owners of those dams saying, hey, it, you know, it's not navigable. Right. And what the owners are saying is, wait a second, we've been doing this for 100 years plus. Uh, you never said you owned... Uh, these beds before, uh, and now you're claiming you own them. We owe you tens of millions of dollars back rent, and we're going to owe you millions of dollars of rent in the future. In in this area, for instance, uh, the Great Falls Reach of the Upper Missouri River. Uh, if you look at that, it doesn't look very navigable. What the Montana court said, and the state of Montana say, is you don't do this piece by piece. You look to the river as a whole, and it's quite navigable on one side of that reach. It's quite navigable on the other side. Uh, that reach. So you should call the whole thing navigable. And what the utilities are saying, the hydroelectric facilities are saying is, no, no, not so fast. You do this segment by segment. This puts the judges in a, in a strange situation. I mean, they've got to figure out really what's navigable, right? Well, they don't have to decide whether in fact these beds are navigable. What the court will say is whether or not the lower courts applied the right test of navigability. And whether you apply that test to the river as a whole or segment by segment, and whether you look to the condition of the river at the time of statehood or whether you look at the condition of the river now, all the court will answer are those very broad legal issues. And then it will send it back to the lower courts to actually apply those legal tests to the facts. I'm reminded what uh, John Paul Getty, the oil man, once said, you, you know, the, the meek shall inherit the earth but not the mineral rights. And the question is now, who owns the rights to underneath the river? Well, that's right. And and in this case, it's rent. In other cases, it can be mineral rights. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, These are very valuable pieces uh, of real estate. My expectation in this case uh, is the court will probably be fairly sympathetic to the hydroelectric facilities argument. So let's move on to Idaho and a case there where a couple known as the Sacketts own a small piece of undeveloped land, less than an acre, and they fill it in. And the EPA says you violated the um, Clean Water Act, and then they order them uh, to, you know, clean it up and, and, and restore it. The question here is whether they have a right to a hearing before the EPA can enforce their rules. The Sackett couple would like to have immediately brought a suit to challenge the legality of that order. But under settled law, you can't challenge an administrative and compliance order submitted by EPA. So the EPA says you got to do it, you got to do it, and then you can sue us later. Well, right. What it means is you either got to do it or if you don't do it and we bring a lawsuit against you, you can challenge us then. But if we're found to be right, you may well have to pay penalties for failing to comply with the order. Yeah, I think they can be really stiff, like $37,500 a day. That's right. And so most people, when they receive an order, they far prefer to say, wait a second, if we think we're not liable, let us challenge the order. Don't put us in this predicament of guessing whether or not you're right. We'd like to challenge it right away. 
What are the implications of this case? Well, the implications of that case would be a lot of bad news for EPA, and that is EPA has long relied in the Clean Air Water Act in this case, but in all the environmental statutes, has relied on the fact that it has enormous leverage over people when they send them administrative compliance orders and requires them to come to EPA and negotiate and often settle these things fairly quickly. But if they lose that, EPA may lose what has been a very important tool in their enforcement arsenal. No one had expected the Supreme Court to grant review in this case. Uh, When the court grants review unexpectedly, when there's no disagreement in the lower courts on an issue, that tends to mean they've taken it to reverse. The Supreme Court uh, refused to hear a bunch of environmental cases. Why is that? Yeah, the Supreme Court every year refuses to hear hundreds and hundreds, indeed thousands uh, of cases, only hears about 1% to 2% of the cases uh, for which it receives requests for review. And it chooses only those cases which present a legal issue which, A, at least four justices, that's how many it takes to grant review, believe is important, and no less significantly that they think the time is right. Uh, And they want to see an issue which is important, not for newspaper headlines, but important because it comes up over and over again. And it's time for the Supreme Court to resolve it. And the one thing the justices agree about is that if they decide not to hear a case, they are saying nothing at all, zero, about whether the decision blow is right or wrong. Well, Professor Lazarus, thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Richard Lazarus is a professor of environmental constitutional law at Harvard University. Well, among the cases the Supreme Court refused to put on its calendar this session is Fast Break Foods v. Saudi Arabian Oil Company. In their brief, Fast Break and other gasoline retailers charge state-owned foreign oil companies like Saudi Oil conspired to fix the price of gas. William Gottfried was one of the attorneys representing the retailers. Well, there are some important issues, not only from an economic standpoint, but from a legal standpoint, about how far foreign interests who are conspiring can come on to American soil and continue their conspiracy, and that's really at the heart of the case. But you were charging that these uh, Russian, Saudi Arabian, and Venezuelan subsidiary, oil subsidiaries, were basically colluding, price-fixing. Yeah, not a great shock. Everybody knows it. Nobody's doing much about it. Well, the Supreme Court turned you down. Sure did. They didn't give you an answer, though, right? Uh, no. But you lost out in the lower courts, too. Well, that tends to be the case. If you lose in the lower courts, you tend to be disfavored and getting it reversed as you go up the chain. Well, what was the lower court ruling? Well, the lower court ruling was essentially that the issue about whether or not you can attack uh, foreign subsidiaries of national companies is a political question which is resigned to the political branches of the government. And specifically, they looked at the executive branch, the president, in terms of its uh, treaty powers and said, basically, this is a presidential issue. So what happens now? Well, that's an excellent question. I'm not quite sure the American people and more specifically Congress, is aware how deeply the tentacles of foreign companies like the OPEC member national oil companies are reaching into the United States commerce directly and apparently are allowed to price fix uh, on American shores. Whether or not the people are aware of this, uh, and Congress is aware of it, I hope they do become aware of it and decide to take action. Now, I'm reading the OPEC mission statement, and it says, and I'm quoting, Their mission is to coordinate and unify the petroleum policies of its member countries and to ensure the stability of oil markets in order to secure an efficient economic and regular supply of petroleum to consumers, a steady income to producers, and a fair return on the capital for those investing in the petroleum industry. Yep, sounds like price fixing to me. 
Now, if these companies were American companies, you think they would be allowed to do what you charge they do? Absolutely not. There would be people doing long time in jail for what they do. Well, the Supreme Court says they're not going to listen to you. So is there any uh, legal standing you can find? Or are you going to pursue this at all? I think we'll just have to see how the situation develops. And you know, since my interest is in fair and open trade that's protected from cartel activities, I'm hoping that Congress decides to wake up and do something serious. Well, Mr. Gottfried, thanks so very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Chicago attorney, William Gottfried. For the past few weeks, Living on Earth has been reporting on the efforts to remove dams around the country. Well, this week, we talk about building them. On a tributary of the Spokane River in Washington State, new dams have gone up, helping to raise the water table, remove pollution and pesticides, attract fish and wildlife, and they cost nothing. Because we're not building the dams, beavers are. Amanda Parrish has been busy with the new dams, busy as a, well, you know... She's director of the Beaver Solution, a program run by Spokane's Lands Council to protect beavers and promote their engineering talents. We caught up with Amanda Parrish while she was knee-deep at work. So I'm walking around here by a dam in California Creek. Luckily, I've got these waterproof boots. What's the beaver dam look like, the one you're in front of? Sort of a U-shaped dam going from bank to bank. It's about four feet tall, I'd say, maybe four and a half by about 30 feet wide. This went up in a matter of weeks, if not just one week. We were here about a month and a half ago and didn't see any sign of beaver dams. And upon returning last week, there's this new dam. So how does the beaver solution work? Well, there's two main components of the program. One is wetland restoration and using beavers as an agent of that restoration, and the other is resolving the human and beaver conflict. Generally, a private property owner contacts us regarding nuisance beaver on their property, so we can go out and assess the problem and offer beaver management strategies. For instance, if losing trees is the problem, we offer tree protection. If flooding land is a problem, we can install pond leveling devices to lower the level of that pond. But in some instances, none of these solutions or strategies really appeal to the landowner, in which case we can offer to relocate the family of beaver. I've spoken to a farmer here in Washington who's interested in getting beaver on his property. He used to live in Wyoming, and he had a series of beaver dams on his property. He would notch them maybe twice a year. It would flood his grazing pasture, and the beaver would patch up that dam in the next day. So he said it was just the greatest irrigation system he's ever had. So how do you trap a beaver? Uh, I didn't go to school to learn how to be an animal trapper, but it's easier than I thought it would be originally. We use what are known as suitcase traps, and they look like a Samsonite suitcase. And we use four traps, you know, set all four traps each night. The traps are aided with food from the trapping site, but what really attracts them is the beaver lure which is the scent used for marking territory. And then we check the traps every morning around 8 or 9 a.m., pick up the beaver that we have from that day, take them to a temporary holding facility, and then go back out that afternoon and repeat the whole process. 
every year we have more people interested in using beaver, whether it's because they like bird watching and they know that beaver ponds are good for that or because they want habitat improvement or water storage. So what are the other benefits from beaver dams? The dam creates a wetlands, and wetlands, as a lot of us know, offer a lot of environmental benefits. If there is a heavy sediment load in the creek from erosion, a beaver dam backs up a lot of that sediment. If there are any pollutants in the stream, like excess phosphorus or nitrogen or heavy metals, those bind to sediments, and that's then stored behind the beaver dam. So again, the water that's flowing out is not only clearer because of less sediment, but it's got less pollutants in it. The beaver is an irrigation engineer. Yeah, exactly. You know, and one of the things that they're often called is ecosystem engineers, which is really true. If you've been around beaver dams, you can see how, other than human beings, they're truly one of the only animals that impacts its ecosystem so greatly. Why do beavers build dams in the first place? What's in it for the beaver? There are two main reasons that beaver build dams. One is they want to control and regulate the level of water so that the entrance to their home, to their lodge, is always underwater. So that keeps them safe from predators, having this underwater entrance. The second reason that they build dams is because they don't hibernate and they need to store food over the winter. So they have a food cache in their ponds, so they need water that's deep enough where it won't freeze over. I was also going to say that the sound of running water is what triggers beaver to want to build dams, and actually there was research done at one point where there was just like a boombox playing the sound of a babbling creek, and eventually the beavers started trying to dam the boombox. Oh, really? They're kind of hardwired to get... They're hardwired to uh, stop that sound of running water. Well, Amanda Parrish, thank you so much. You're welcome. Amanda Parrish is the director of the Beaver Solution. It's a program run by Spokane's Lands Council. It's a nonprofit conservation group. Among those awed by the engineering skill of the North American beaver is environmental writer Mark Seth Lender. Here's an essay of his we like so much, we're replaying it. The pond is still as polished stone, a duotone, tannic brown and gray and quiet, a quiet made of fine rain, slow churning of earthworm, purr of woodpecker on a dead tree across to the other shore. Hush of river rolling over the dam of cross sticks, which holds all this, this space, this wetted openness. Toward me now comes the engineer. Fast as a blur he comes, the V of his wake deep and sure, nose lifted just above the water. Thick fur, wet but warm, covers him, all but where he sees and breathes and hears, and the pad of his paw. He has no gills, no fins, no scales. When he dives, he holds his breath. Where water flows, he must stop it. Wherever it goes, he will find it. He is drawn by the sound and by the feel and perhaps even the scent. Now closer, as close to me as curiosity demands, till the flat of his tail waves goodbye and smooth as a silk scarf, he disappears underwater. Taming of the liquid force is the life work of the American beaver. It is the product of both forethought and design and an agile mind. First, a survey must be made. 
Noting where the bank is high and the river narrow, he will begin there. He needs no protractor, no T-square. Lacking transit and plumb-bob, he proceeds by rack of eye alone, yet what he builds endures. With saplings and small lumber, in a weave that seems random but is not, with mud, with stones, layer by layer the dam is raised until all water will be conquered. In the finishing of a pond, a beaver takes many trees. Teeth are his adze and axe, and he works in the round, carefully. His lodge later branches is the keep where his family shelters, and their safety is his purpose. High in the leafy tops, predators may lurk in the form of eagles. Low down, cougar and coyote may hide behind the trunks. To hold the standing woods at a distance is not unwise, in a beaver's near-sighted eyes. Among the beaver's works, trout and minnow swim, and great blue herons fish for them. Wood ducks in Kandinsky colors, king fishers, querulous lovers, painted turtle, drifting ark, dragonflies hunting near dark, late returning red-shouldered hawk. All this is here from what the beaver clears. Much depends upon the engineer. Mark Seth Linder's latest book is called Salt Marsh Diary. There are some of his photographs on our website, LOE.org. Coming up, Christo's latest environmental artwork, Over the River, isn't through the woods just yet. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change, and the Sierra Club helping city-bound kids explore and enjoy wild places they'll later strive to protect. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. From time to time, we feature cool fixes for a hot planet, new ideas that can help us beat the heat from climate change. One that could help a little bit makes use of a big pile of plastic. Living on Earth's Raffaella Benin tells us more. A home cleaning and personal care products company wants to scrub the great outdoors, or at least a part of it. It plans to collect plastic from a massive trash pile in the Pacific Ocean, and recycle it into a laundry detergent bottle. The company, Method, produces soap, detergent, and multi-purpose sprays. It already makes its spray bottles and pump canisters from 100% recycled materials. Now, Method is teaming up with Envision Plastics to make a container with 25% recycled trash from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The Garbage Patch sits in the North Pacific Gyre, a system of currents that swirl the ocean's waters. Discarded fishing nets, plastic bottles, and waste dumped by cruise ships twist together in the middle of the ocean, over an area some scientists say is the size of Texas. Some of that trash washes up on the shores of Hawaii and California. Method knows its cleaning efforts won't rid the ocean of this great garbage vortex. But the company hopes that its message in a bottle will increase awareness of the problem and encourage more people to recycle. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Rafaela Benin. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd love to hear it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a shiny electric blue Living on Earth tire gauge. 
Keeping your tires properly inflated can save you hundreds of dollars a year in fuel costs and make the going a lot smoother. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or go to our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. The headwaters of the Arkansas River begin as a trickle high in the Colorado Rockies. And rapidly, the flow turns into a whitewater torrent that runs 1,500 miles east through four states. Rafting the Arkansas is said to be about the best in the nation. The fly fishing is fast and furious. And it turns out it's also the perfect place, says the artist known simply as Christo, to create an enormous environmental work of art. Look at that. You see how the river curve? All that will be fabric. Marvelous, marvelous. Unbelievable, beautiful. Christo traveled 15,000 miles and visited 89 rivers before choosing this stretch of the Arkansas near Canyon City, Colorado. It's a 20-year-long artwork in progress. Christo envisioned suspending eight sections of shimmering, translucent fabric panels over miles of the Arkansas for the project he calls Over the River. I was not aware of that famous song, Over the River, to the Woods, da 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 and... and <laughs> I like very much the title. It's exactly what is the project. Over the river, because nothing is over. It's over. Christo says over the river will be temporary. The installation will exist for just two weeks. The proposal is to suspend fabric panel minimum eight feet above the water. On some occasion it's 10, 15 feet above the water. And that span of 42 miles, we suspend 59 miles of fabric panels and many locations. And to see the project, we take you one and a half hour to drive on the road. To see the project inside, the project is above you, uh, we take about four and a half hours. To create his artistic statement, Christo had to create an environmental impact statement. It runs 1,700 pages and costs several million dollars to produce. But even if it's approved by federal officials, over the river won't be entirely through the woods. A group known as ROAR, rags over the Arkansas River, has filed a lawsuit to prevent the project they charge would be like, quote, hanging pornography in a church. Uh, this is the site, finally. And this is the, the Christo acknowledges his project is audacious, but he welcomes the controversy, as I learned when I met him in the four-story Soho brownstone in New York City that serves as his studio, gallery, and home. I work alone in my studio. Ask some artist 76 years old can tell you that. Even At 76, his face is deeply worn. Black glasses set off his white and wild hair. Christo is short, wispy thin, wears worn jeans and a threadbare shirt with French cuffs tied with tiny pieces of string. The artist is passionate and pugnacious and quickly established the guidelines for our interview. I will answer all your questions, but I will not talk about politics, religion, and other artists. Well, that's fair enough. Because all my time I reserve for myself. (laughs) Only talk about myself and Jean-Claude myself, that's all. To understand Christo, you must know about the love of his life, Jean-Claude. They were a cosmic couple born on the exact same day and year. He Bulgarian, she French. They met in Paris, fell in love, and married. 
but her parents disapproved of the eccentric, impoverished artist who wrapped small objects in paper and fabric. So Christo and Jean-Claude emigrated to the United States, and for half a century, they collaborated, sharing a vision for transforming landscapes into vast works of art, using islands, coastlines, famous buildings and bridges as their canvas. Christo, the artist, Jean-Claude, project manager. One of their major early works was Running Fence. In this film documentary, Jean-Claude stands by the sea describing Christo's vision. What he wants to do is that have the 18 feet fence, you know, yeah. go until until you can't see it anymore. Until you can't see it. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I hope it yeah. doesn't take until Hawaii to do that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Running Fence was erected in 1976. It consisted of 2,000 18-foot-high sheets of white nylon. They ran 24 and a half miles along the northern coast of California, then plunged into the Pacific Ocean. It would be nice that they start early in the morning when they open it in the fog. And when the sunshine comes up, yeah. it's there, Just, like a miracle. Yeah. That would be great. Jean-Claude died two years ago, but her influence, fiery hot as her bright red hair, still burns within Christo. Jean-Claude and myself, when the project is realized, we like to stay with our baby. Each project is like a child of our, us. Each project is some period of our life. But Jean-Claude was saying, always, I use her name, if I really like to have the preferable one, is always the next one. <laughs> anyway, for all our projects, we like to have the very articulate and very not misleading title. When the project is called Running Fence, it's Fence with Running. Where is the Valley curtain is curtain in the valley. With umbrella is an umbrella. Umbrellas consisted of 3,000 giant blue and yellow umbrellas set in California and Japan. It took 17 years from concept to completion and cost $26 million. For Valley Curtain, they hung a giant orange nylon sheet between two Colorado mountains. For Wrapped Reichstag, they used nine miles of rope to tie a shroud of woven plastic around the German Parliament building. It took an act of Parliament to get the project approved. Christo recalls each project down to the size of every anchor, nut, and bolt, and remembers the exact moment that inspired his latest project over the river. He tells me it was back in 1985 when he and Jean-Claude were supervising workmen as they wrapped the Pont Neuf, the oldest bridge in Paris, in beige fabric. Jean-Claude and myself were standing. The fabric was floating, was moving with the wind like that, like that, like that, and we saw the fabric suspended way above the water. Now that image stayed in our mind. And only in 1992, over the river was born. But did uh, Jean-Claude say to you, let's do something, or did you say it to Jean-Claude? No, Jean no, no, Claude? we remember that image. So one piece of art gave birth to another piece but, of art. Uh, and, and a, no, not piece of art. And a moment of execution of one piece of art. But this is not the. It was not a piece of art. Was the, during it's the making. A, it's not a piece of no, art. No, the fabric suspended, and over the water to come to the wrapping of the bridge was not a piece of art. Like the oil paint and the palette of the artist is not a piece of art. It's material for the piece of art. We use cloth, and the fabric is the principal element to translate this temporary character, nomadic character of the work. All our wrap project, they are like living objects. You know, the fabric is not cemented. The fabric is a full motion, moving with the wind all the time. And it's not something like stay static. And what Jean-Claude like ourselves like to do is to borrow that space and create gentle disturbance for a few days. 
we have that tenderness and love for something will be gone forever, like our life. We know that will be gone. Like our childhood, we know that will be gone. And something it will miss tomorrow forever. So are you sad or are you happy when they're over? No, no, that is the aesthetical decision. Of course we're very happy. The very bottom of all project, Jean-Claude Mann said, we are absolutely involved with the freedom. The freedom? Freedom. Absolutely artistic freedom is the supreme part of our existence. This project exists only because myself and Jean-Claude would like to have them. Not because public like to have them with some corporate executive or some foundation or something. The world can live perfectly without our valley curtain, without surrounded island, without the rice tank. They are totally irresponsible. All our projects, they are irrational, totally useless, <laughs> and the world can live without them. But, in some way, they cannot be bought. Nobody can own this project. Nobody can charge tickets for this project. Nobody can, even myself, I do not own this project. We do not accept any sponsor, any grants. All our work is copyright, trademark. Nobody can commercialize our work, anything. We are ferociously involved with keeping absolutely our freedom outside of any possession. But it means that since you're not funded by a foundation or companies or you can't sell tickets, it means you, how, how you're a starving artist? It's not an inexpensive venture. This is a very complex operation. And the money comes to pay the services of many, many people. Hundreds of people working sometimes, lawyers to construction workers. To environmental scientists, engineers, and more lawyers. Over the river could cost upwards of $50 million. Christo pays for his projects entirely by himself. He sells small pieces from his early works, preliminary drawings of projects in the works, and books chronicling the creation of his iconic masterworks. At a public hearing in Colorado before her death in 2009, Jean-Claude was asked about the price tag for Over the River. How much will the project cost? It is very much like bringing up a child. It will cost us whatever it has to cost. No, we if, ask your mother if she had an estimate on you. We do not know what is the project where we start. This is why we do not do commissions. The project developed his identity to the permitting process. So is the process part of the art? Absolutely. Imagine, I can tell you, absolutely the most vivid and most powerful genesis of the work is the permitting process. I'm asking you to explain, to sell it to a public entity, why they should allow it to happen. Okay, I can tell you, I can tell you. Members of the organization Roar, rags over the Arkansas River, say Christo's plan to span 42 miles of river with 5.9 miles of suspended sheets of fabric will create an eyesore that will disrupt emergency vehicles, discourage tourists, permanently harm the riverbanks, and endanger bighorn sheep that live along the Arkansas. For Christo... These concerns are all part of the creative process. Any artist, he hopes that the work creates discussion, that people think about the work. We're the only artists in the world who our work was discussed before the work exists. <laughs> For years and years, thousands of people think how awful the work will be, how beautiful the work will be. And they argue. So you're not discouraged by the controversy that over the but river is called. I'm not masochist, no. <laughs> I love to have a lesser problem. 
but it's never, never, never possible. But you like no, mixing that, it up. That is you the, like but that is the, the argument. You like? But that is the soul, the blood of these projects. This is why you are here. Because usually the art world is very small club, like a private club. And of course, imagine what pleasure we have to talk to ranchers, to the politicians, to senators, to the Japanese rice field farmers, to a variety of people that usually you don't talk to these people. You know, it's very, very important to see how the project really create that chemistry of things and build this dynamic. This is not theater, it's not spectacle, it's not make-believe. This is coming to the real things, I tell you, the real things. The real wind, the real weather, the real sun, the real dry, the real things. No make-believe. I love the things I do. I am enjoying every minute of the work I do, from the little drawings to flying, discussing, and I scream, I'm emotional, but is is I will never retire, Jean-Claude always saying, and artists don't retire, they simply die. <laughs> <laughs> is Over the River going to happen? I believe, I believe, the sensibility in the government, decision makers, and I'm a big believer. Before saying goodbye, Christo gives me a book about Over the River, and I take out a photograph of my family taken in New York's Central Park. It was back in 2005. We went there to see Christo's last project, The Gates, 7,500 fabric saffron sheets flapping in the wind, winding through meadows and walkways. Yeah, I will sign that for you. And then with a special wax pen and a flourish, the artist signs his name, Christo. Voilà. Sometime over the next few weeks, the Bureau of Land Management is expected to finally decide if Over the River gets the go-ahead. If it does, Christo's plan to suspend huge panels of shimmering silver fabric along a 42-mile stretch of the Arkansas River could happen in August 2014. On the next Living on Earth, it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease and increasingly it's boisterous environmentalists that derail megaprojects. Governments are acting too slow. Corporations are acting too slow. And so I think people are saying, we need to stand up and start doing something. And I have seen some projects that have been thrown out due to large-scale protests. People power versus massive projects. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, and Ike Srishkandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriela Romano, and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Rafaela Benin and Jack Rodolico. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org, and while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.